0: Would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word and turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you don't happen to have a Bible with you this morning, I invite you to grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 884. It was some 17 months ago that we began our studies through Luke's Gospel, and we have finally reached the climactic scene. In this Gospel narrative, as Jesus today is crucified on a hill called Calvary. So in recent weeks, we've seen all of the events of Passion Week find their culmination pointing towards Jesus dying on a cross. We've seen the betrayer kiss Jesus. We've seen the disciple betray Jesus. We've seen the Sanhedrin condemn Jesus. And last week, we've seen the Roman governor Pilate judge Jesus, and now it's time for Him to go out on the Via Dolorosa, this way of sorrows, this road of suffering, up to a hill called Calvary. So what we want to look at together this morning is just verses 26 through 49, our Lord's crucifixion, which is our theme. So let me go ahead and read our text for us, and then pray for God's blessing, and we will begin. Let us hear now for God is speaking to us through His Word. And as they led Jesus away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed Him a great multitude of the people and of the women who were mourning and lamenting for Him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for Me, But weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry to others? who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Him. And the criminals, one on His right and one on His left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide His garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at Him, saying, He saved others. Let Him save Himself, if He's the Christ, the Chosen One. "...since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong." And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances... And the women who had followed Him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's Word? The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we come to a truth in Scripture that many of us know so well have heard possibly for years and maybe even decades the story of a king killed at Calvary. Father, it's a message from heaven that needs the tongue of angels. So Father, we pray that You would help us to hear with eagerness, that You would help me to preach as Your Word says I must, with courage and clarity. Help us to hear with unique urgency, knowing we're not even promised the end of this day. We're not promised the end of this week, the end of this month, or the end of this year. So like the thief, let us not despair. Let us not delay. But let us come to Christ today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I remember years ago, sitting in a class on writing, and the day's topic was descriptive writing, as what sometimes happens in these classes, the instructor flashed up this image on the screen. It was this kind of panoramic scene that hung up there for about 30 seconds, and then the instructor immediately took it away and said, describe what you just saw. And so we all put pen to paper, and after some allotment of time, we began to read back the descriptions that we had Written down. And of course, if you know how these things go, you would have assumed that the class had seen 15 to 20 different panoramic shots. So varied were the descriptions that were offered. But of course, we had only seen one image. And yet we had all seen it quite differently. And what we find today in our text is, without a doubt, the most sacred and solemn scene in all of Scripture. One panorama of our Savior's glory. And I wonder how you would describe it. Kids, if your parents come home today and over lunch say, what did you see at Calvary? What might you say? And what's interesting, if you notice as we are reading through the passage, that the passage is much as about what we hear as what we see. There's four different kind of scenes in this passage, all punctuated by conversations, by words from Jesus. First, he's talking with these weeping, these mourning women. Uh, Then he is talking to his father in the face of the mocking that he is enduring there hanging on the cross. And then he's talking with a thief that is next to him. And finally, as he dies, he's talking once again uh, with his father. So as we consider this theme of Christ crucified... I just have four words that will guide us along the way that we're going to see today, we're going to hear today. First, sadness at the cross. Secondly, forgiveness. Thirdly, assurance. And fourthly, confidence. So you might be in here today and and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I hope you know that you've come today on the greatest day in human history. That's the greatest day of The greatest terror that ever happened. That reveals the greatest treasure you could ever know. And kids, I hope you'll pay attention this morning because I think there are things that you will see in this passage that maybe you never noticed before or heard about when Jesus died on the cross. And maybe if you've been a Christian for many years, uh, you might see afresh this morning that the Bible is true when it says there are unsearchable riches to be found in Jesus Christ. He was crucified for sinners like you and me. And we first see sadness at the cross. Look down again at verse 26. Luke simply says, and as they led Him away. So if you weren't with us last week, you need to know what they're leading Him away from. He spent the early morning hours of Good Friday at this man Pontius Pilate's headquarters. He's the Roman governor, the prefect there in Judea. And over and over, we noticed last week, Pilate is convinced that Jesus is innocent. He hasn't done anything to merit, to warrant crucifixion, but for political expediency, Pilate cowers. He caters to the demands of the religious leaders and says, okay, fine, crucify him. So he had Jesus scourged whipped to such a degree that surely no skin was left on his back. And they led him away, which John's gospel tells us meant they placed the horizontal crossbeam on Jesus' shoulders. Because you need to know at this time in early first century Judaism, but also in the Roman Empire, a crucifixion was as much about the criminal's execution as it was a public deterrent. Uh, They became this spectacle. So if you look down at verse 48 of our text, you see that it became a spectacle to all who were there. They meant for it to basically create such a terror, to have so much torture that no one's going to want to commit this crime of insurrection that Jesus was accused of. And part of that torturous terror that they meant for all the public to see began with this 100-pound beam placed on Jesus' shoulders. But you may not have realized before that no gospel author tells us why Jesus actually didn't carry it to Calvary. We can probably assume... That he was too weak. He had been up all night. Surely he hadn't eaten anything. Bloodied, bruised, broken from all the beatings that he endured. A crown of thorns shoved into his head. No strength left in him. No energy within his body to carry this heavy weight. So what do they do? Look at verse 26 as it continues. They seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus." It seems as though that Simon just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time to bear the painful, shameful weight of this cross, that the Roman soldiers just picked him. Maybe he was strong. Maybe he was tall. Maybe he looked able. Whatever the reason, he's the one that carries Jesus' cross. And interestingly, Mark's Gospel and the letter to the Romans tells us that this man became a very famous Christian in the early church. We don't know when he was converted. It seems like the way the gospel authors talk about him, that he wasn't converted when he's carrying Jesus' cross. And maybe it was carrying the cross that saw him looking on Jesus with new eyes of faith. Because we know for sure that he is, of course, literally fulfilling what Jesus has said the central part of discipleship is. Take up the cross and follow me wherever I go. And it's not just Simon that's following Jesus. You see in the next verse that a great multitude is following him. And among this multitude is a crowd of women who are mourning, who are lamenting Jesus' death. And Jesus is getting ready to refer to them as daughters of Jerusalem. So I think it's right that we see these women not as true followers and disciples of Jesus. They're kind of fitting into that ancient Near Eastern custom at the time of they're just revulsed. They're, they're finding great difficulty that this man has been condemned that seems so innocent, and so they're expressing revulsion at the Roman oppression of Jesus Christ, and so they're mourning. How can such a man be killed in such a gruesome way? And it seems appropriate, doesn't it, to mourn a man's innocence like Jesus? Even, you know, the Bible story, well, maybe, you're the prophecy from Zechariah 12, verse 10, that says one is going to come who's going to be pierced, he's going to be crushed for sinners... And they're going to look upon Him and mourn. So what these women are doing seems actually quite appropriate. But you see, Jesus says, don't do it. Look at verse 28. He turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Don't weep for me dying. Weep for you. Why? Well, He gives us two answers. First, He gives us A prophecy. Look at verse 29 through 30. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us and to the hills. Cover us. And that last quotation, verse 30. comes from Hosea 10, verse 8. Which prophesied Israel's destruction at the hands of Assyria, which came to pass. Interestingly enough, Revelation 6, verse 16 says, The same thing is going to be said at the end of the ages when God comes in judgment upon the nations. And so what Jesus is apparently saying to these women, and we know this is true if you follow along throughout the past few months in Luke's gospel, because it's the seventh time, it it appears, at least in my reading, seventh time that he's essentially predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. He did it most recently back in Luke chapter 21, that there's a time coming because of the rejection of him, God's son that they will be judged. Jerusalem will be destroyed. There's a time coming. Jesus even said in that chapter, it'd be a good thing if you didn't have a young child. So great is the wrath going to be that falls on Jerusalem. So he says, don't cry because of this prophecy. Secondly, don't cry because of this proverb. Look at verse 31. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? It's it's a proverb that has led scholars and commentators to wonder what Jesus was after because it's kind of mysterious and enigmatic. Uh, I think the best way we want to take it is Jesus is essentially saying, if they do this to me who is innocent, what will they do to you who is guilty? Just as dry aged wood is ripe for burning, so you and your sin are ripe for judgment. So do you see why he says, He says, don't cry for me. And Maybe you need to hear this uniquely. You've heard sermons before on Christ's passion there at Gethsemane leading up to Calvary. And so we so want to cry over Jesus' shame, His death. And what Jesus keeps saying to those who see Him, cry for your sin. Don't cry for me because I'm condemned. Cry for yourself because you're under the same condemnation of death too. Cry for your sin." that you might find repentance and new life in me. So you have these women who are looking at Jesus and all they see is sadness. And then what we find next is forgiveness at the cross. You'll see in verse 32 that we're told Jesus is crucified with these two criminals. Other texts would render it as rebels, as robbers. They're likely accused of insurrection or rebellion just as Jesus was. And very plainly, And quite quickly, notice verse 33, what Luke says, when they came to the place that is called the Skull. In Aramaic, that's Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvary, so that's why we often say Calvary. Kids, it would have looked probably like a hill that was somehow shaped to the ancient people like a skull. And it was there that Jesus, Luke says, was crucified. And the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Uh, there was this English literary figure in uh, the mid-1900s that was something of a cultural force in Great Britain, and her name was Marganita Lasky. And when she got to the end of her life, she gave this television interview in 1988. And as people are prone to do when they're nearing the end, it's like the tongue is loosed a little bit, and there's a degree of honesty and sober self-reflection that you didn't hear in previous decades of their life. And she was interviewing with this journalist, and the journalist asked a question to which she responded, what I envy most about Christians is their forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. And it's as though you wanted just to say, can I take you to Luke chapter 23, verse 34, for what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And you wonder in the course of the morning's events, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus is crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning. Where along the way does He say this? Is it when His hands are being driven through by nails? When His feet are pierced by that metal? Maybe it's when the scoffers and the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers are mocking Him. Maybe it's when He's finally laid upright on the cross for all to see. We don't even know when He said this. We don't even know whom he said it for, because you see, he says, Forgive them. Who's them? The religious leaders, the crowds, the Roman soldiers. Whenever it happened, for whomever he prayed it, what you need to see this morning is Jesus is now beginning his work as the great high priest who intercedes, who mediates for sinners like you and me, praying to His Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I wonder what you would think to say had you been crucified that day. Maybe it would have been something in our own sinful pride and self-justification we also want to say, well, just wait and see. You'll know quite soon who I really am. Would you pray for forgiveness for those in their ignorance We don't know exactly what is going on. But he does pray for forgiveness. And so if you're in here this morning and you're a Christian, you need to know that every day the Bible says Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you. If you consider that this man, the Son of God, the sinless substitute for sinners like you and me, stands before his Father's throne in heaven praying for you by name. Father, pour out your grace upon him, upon her, upon them it's forgiveness they hear but all they do is continue to mock him don't they you notice in the verses continue as the religious leaders in their insatiable hatred towards jesus they can't help but one last time it's like throwing him yet again another vocal barb hey if you're really the savior come down and save yourself yourself pretend savior they say and the roman soldiers join in too don't they You're a pretend ruler, you see what they say in verse 37 and 38. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Uh, There's this interesting thing going on in John's gospel between the religious leaders and Pilate over this inscription that hung over Jesus' head. Pilate had it saying, as you'll see in verse 38, this is the king of the Jews. The religious leaders said, no, Pilate, have it say, he said he was the king of the Jews. But to like stick it to the religious leaders one last time in Israel, he not only has it say, this is the king of the Jews, he puts it in three different languages. Aramaic, Greek, and Latin. Which, of course, in great irony is announcing what? He's not just the king of the Jews. He's the king of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. This is who is being crucified. They saw the king crucified at Calvary, and what did they see? Just a man to mark. We see now assurance at the cross. You'll see another person joins in the mockery. Verse 39, one of the criminals who are hanged, railed against him. That word railed. It's actually blasphemed him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now students, I want you to pay attention to this account of Jesus between the thieves. You're only going to find it in Luke's gospel. It shows up nowhere else in the Bible. So it's uniquely interesting to us for this reason. Throughout Luke's gospel, we've seen over and over for almost a year and a half, there are only two responses to Jesus. You will either reject him or you will receive him. And what are we going to get with these thieves? One rejecting him, the other receiving him. And why does the one reject him? Because he doesn't do, Jesus doesn't do what this thief wants him to do. Hey, save me. Then I'll believe in you. Just satisfy my immediate desire for deliverance. And then I'll think about trusting in you. Isn't it true that so so often many people in this world, they just want temporary deliverances from Jesus more than the forgiveness that Jesus alone can give. But you need to know Jesus is less inclined to care as much about delivering you from your present circumstances than reconciling you to the Father, the state of your soul before God. What is much better is what the next person, the next thief says. Look at verse 40 through 41. And the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation and we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. What you see in this thief next to Jesus is something of a miniature picture of what true conversion to Christ looks like. Because what does this thief recognize? First, he's sinful. He deserves the condemnation of death. Second, Jesus is what? Totally righteous. And He alone can save. The Kids, what you need to know is that the Bible says something that the world doesn't tell you, that your friends probably won't tell you, that your family may not even tell you, that you're a sinner who deserves to die. This thief knew it. The condemnation is just, he says. But he doesn't in there, does he? He doesn't look only on his own sin. He looks on Jesus Christ, because what does he say in verse 42? Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You've never not gone far enough if you've only realized that your sin deserves condemnation. You must take it even further. To realize that only in Christ can you find salvation. And he gets it, doesn't he? He hears this word of assurance. Look at what Jesus says in verse 43. Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And there's a couple striking things about what Jesus says in verse 43. Uh, The first of which is there's nothing that this thief did to deserve the promise of paradise. I mean, how could he do anything? He's hanging there, crucified next to Jesus. What is he going to do to earn salvation? But you don't have to do anything to earn the promise of paradise. This is not a person who is going to memorize the catechism. This is not a person who is going to hear the confession of faith. This is not a person who is ever going to serve in the church. This is not a person who would ever attend a Lord's Day worship service. But this is a person who looked on Jesus simply in faith, and he hears today. You'll be with me in paradise. And that word paradise is interesting in and of itself. It actually was taken from an old Persian word that meant garden. It was often used more literally of pleasure park. So you remember the first Adam all the way back in Genesis and his sin, what happened? Kicked out of the garden. Here comes the second Adam, Jesus Christ, returning with his people to the garden. Today, you will be with me in paradise, sweetest assurance that anyone can ever hear. But we end, don't we, with Christ's confidence at the cross. You may have heard the story before of an explorer named Ernest Shackleton, who in 1914 took a crew down to Antarctica. They were going to be the first crew that was not only going to reach Antarctica, but cross the South Pole. And quite unsurprisingly, the ship got down there, got stuck in ice, and was crushed. And those men that made it back to the land of their departure were often asked as they went on these tours recounting their incredible adventure and otherworldly experience in many ways, they were often asked, what was the most terrifying thing about the whole ordeal? And in some ways you would almost think like, well, the the starvation that, that caused all this pain was so terrifying, or just the continual haunting thought that I was never going to see my child or my spouse or my loved ones ever again. Or maybe, of course, it was, the South Pole is really cold. So cold, it is scary. But they didn't say any of those things. Uh, the reports from the Times say they continually focused on one thing that was utterly horrifying, a darkness that no man can comprehend. And it's a darkness that falls. Now, notice verse 45 and 46 on Jesus Christ at Calvary. It was now about the sixth hour. That's about 12 p.m., it's noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, that's 3 p.m., while the sun's light failed. And it's striking in the course of Jesus' life when he's born at Bethlehem, what happens? The night turns to day when the Shekinah glory of heaven shines all around on the shepherds. But here it is death at Golgotha. It's though the day turns to night because God's wrath has fallen on his son. And so terrifying is the darkness of God's judgment. It's like the light runs away for three hours. So terrifying, in fact, that something happens in the temple. Look at verse 45. The curtain of the temple was torn in two Now I do think that it is right to make an application of the temple being torn to say that we now have this free, confident access to the Father's presence. Because this temple curtain, no gospel actually says which one it was. It probably was the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer courts of the temple. And now through Jesus Christ, of course, our great high priest, we have now free, gracious, continual access to the Father. But in Luke's gospel, I tend to think he means the torn curtain is a sign of God's wrath and judgment on Israel. He has said it from beginning to end of this Gospel. The temple that was the location of all their religious devotion is soon to be destroyed. What's at the center of that temple? The Holy of Holies. What's dividing the Holy of Holies? This curtain. So the torn curtain is a sign of God's judgment on the rejection of His Son. The overthrow of Jerusalem is a sign of God's judgment for the rejection on his son. In the midst of this polar night of sorts, God's wrath falling there at Calvary, there is a voice in Luke's gospel that just pierces the darkness. Look at verse 46. Jesus called out with a loud voice. Now kids, the Greek words for loud voice are the ones from which we get our words megaphone. It's as though what Jesus is doing there And the horrifying darkness of God's judgment falling upon him. He lifts up a spiritual megaphone for everyone to hear what? Final words, last words from Jesus. What is he going to say? Luke says in verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's what Luke has Jesus saying there at the very end. And it's words. They are words that are quite significant. Because first you need to know that they actually come from the Bible. Psalm 31, verse 5. Jesus is again fulfilling all of this Old Testament expectation that He indeed is the Son of David. Even the psalm itself, you can go home and read it later on today. Psalm 31 is this psalm about trust in God in the midst of sorrow, anguish, agony. Even death. And here it is, this perfect depiction of what it means to truly trust in God, even to the very end. But uniquely, it also is reminding us that Jesus is what? Laying down His life of His own accord. Into your hands I commit my spirit. No one takes it away from me. Father, the end has come, and I'm returning home to you. Which is, of course, what we're told at the end of verse 46. Do you see what Luke says? Having said this, He breathed his last. Did you know that no gospel says Jesus died? They all say it quite mysteriously for the way you talked about death at that time. Matthew's gospel says he yielded up his spirit. Mark's gospel, he breathed his last. John, he gave up his spirit. In the same way, more literally in our text, he breathed out, signaling the way this man died It's totally unlike anything anyone has ever seen before. And a Roman centurion sees that. Do you notice verse 47? When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God saying, certainly this man was innocent. Which Mark's gospel has him saying, certainly this man was the son of God. A Roman centurion saw the king killed at Calvary and what did he see? He saw God's Savior, God's Messiah. He saw God's Son. Dying in a place of sinful people. What do you see when you look at Christ crucified at Calvary? I think it was about 15 years or so ago that Mel Gibson's epic movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out and stirred up you know, no a small amount of interest. It was like a worldwide phenomenon for a few months. And, of course, much of the phenomenon focused on the gruesome, and brutal betrayal of Jesus's agony as he was crucified and it's a true historical violent visceral death it's trying to show and at the time critics were actually divided on whether or not this was a good thing a time magazine's movie critics said in a in a positive way it's a serious and handsome excruciating film that radiates total commitment Rotten Tomatoes, the online aggregator, uh, said more negatively, the graphic details of Jesus' torture make the movie tough to sit through and obscure whatever message it is trying to convey. An exercise you could do this week. Read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John's accounts of Jesus' death. Notice how unviolent they are. Luke is actually the most restrained gospel author On Jesus' death. He doesn't tell us, like John's gospel, that his feet and hands were nailed. He doesn't tell us, like John's gospel, that it was Jesus that had to first carry this crossbeam. He doesn't tell us, like Matthew and Mark, that so great was the suffering and agony of Jesus Christ that he cries, What? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So here's the question I want to ask at the end Why no violence, relatively speaking? Why no agony and suffering? In these conversations that Jesus is having, that's where we get Luke's unique contribution to the death of Jesus Christ. Why does he so emphasize what Jesus is saying less what Jesus experienced? I want to give you at least three reasons why, I think. He emphasizes the story this way, and then we'll be done. First, he wants to show us that Jesus has all sovereignty. No one takes his life from him. He gives it willingly. Also, throughout the text, in ways we can easily miss, there are all of these prophetic fulfillments that are going on in the passage. So Jesus has said, you'll notice again in verse 32, that He was crucified. He was led away with two criminals. Isaiah 53, verse 12, said the suffering servant was going to come and be numbered among the transgressors. Verse 34 tells us they cast lots to divide His garments. Almost a by-word fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. The mocking he endured from the religious leaders and from the Roman soldiers, almost verbatim, fulfilling, in Psalm 22, verse seven and eight, that we sang earlier in the service, that the one who comes and is the Messiah, the true son of David, he will be mocked, scorned. He has all sovereignty as he fulfills God's plan of redemption throughout history. So all of the Old Testament's expectation of salvation, it comes now to fruition. In Jesus Christ. It's no accident what's happening here. Luke means to paint the picture in such a way that Jesus is in total control. Do you see that? Of what he says. Of what he yields to God. He has all sovereignty. Secondly, he has all mercy. Jesus is all mercy. Because there's an incredible gospel irony in the scoffing that he endures from the religious leaders and Roman soldiers. Because what do they say? Essentially, hey, if you're the Savior... Save yourself. If you're the king, come down. And Jesus knows to do that would mean he's not the savior. To do that would mean he's not the king. He had a choice there, didn't he? He could save himself. Or he could save you. He could die so that you might live. Or he could live so that you might die. Now, what did he choose in all mercy, to die, to save sinners like you. He's not just the one that has all sovereignty and is full of mercy. He's also the one that brings us to glory. Truly, he says to this thief in verse 43, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You know, in the evangelical churches of my upbringing, we actually talked about heaven quite a bit, but more often than not, it was a conversation that was generally motivated by questions, questions like this. You think we're going to play baseball in heaven? Jordan, you like soccer a lot. You think we're going to play soccer in the new heavens and the new earth? I remember my dad saying once, I love butter. You think there's going to be butter in heaven? Or more seriously and soberly, I lost my spouse. Am I going to see him or her in heaven? And those are all okay questions. But at least in my upbringing and experience. Rarely did it focus on the centerpiece of heaven. It's almost as though we had read verse 43. And took the good news to mean this. Today you will be in paradise. But that's not what he says, is it? Underline it. Circle it. Put a star around it. Today you will be what? With me. In paradise, What do you see when you see the king killed at Calvary? May you see the radiance of God's glory finally and fully revealed. May you see God and Jesus Christ reconciling the world to himself. May you see the Son of God, sinless substitute, slain for sinners like you and me. May you see God's victory over principalities and powers, the cosmic forces of evil in the heavenly places, finally put to open shame in this man, Jesus Christ. May you see the one who in your soul loves, that the Old Testament loved to delight in as the chief among 10,000. Who do you see when you look on Christ crucified at Calvary? Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for Your Son who has done what we could not do, satisfied the wrath that our sin deserves. We thank You that His blood was perfect and so it's precious. Cleanse us, we pray, as we come to Christ that we might know the new life, the forgiveness, the assurance of faith that He alone can offer. Father, help us to look on Him who is the founder and perfecter of our faith as we run our race with endurance. We do pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.